Emily? Hey, Carl. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Okay. I have with me Emily Van Dyne. And I guess we'll call this episode, episode 37, Why Plath? Okay. I love that. <laughs> That's great. You want to begin? How did you become interested in Sylvia Plath? Well, I had a wonderful high school English and creative writing teacher. Um, he gave me the bell jar when I was a freshman in high school and I read it and I was like, that was depressing. And I, I, <laughs> I, I was more interested in the biographical note at the end. I had the Lois Ames edition, you know? Oh yes. Yeah. Which I think is uh, indicative of uh, what I would do in the future. Um, and certainly relevant to the work that, that you and I both do and to this conversation. I, I was fascinated by her drawings and the uh, poems that were included. They had Mad Girl's Love Song was included in that. Um, and I thought that was beautiful. And then uh, my sophomore year, I took his creative writing class, the same teacher. And I read the canonical poems for the first time, Daddy and Lady Lazarus and Tulips, um, and was just just knocked on my proverbial ass. As yes. I, I, I just couldn't, I, I had never heard or read anything like them. I didn't know anything like them existed. Um, the word that always comes to mind is the audacity, you know, yes. that I heard in her voice. Uh, and I was a person that had kind of a fraught relationship with my own father. And so the poem daddy just astounded me. Sure. Um, and then uh, my teacher, whose name is Peter Murphy, he's still very active in the literary community here. He's terrific. And he's on Twitter, so we can we can tag him. <laughs> live. Uh, he gave me Anne Stevenson's Bitter Fame and uh, Linda Wagner-Martin's biography of Plath. And he said, read Bitter Fame first and tell me what you think and then read the other one. And then tell me what you think. And so I think without any intention, or maybe he did have intention, he quite literally set me on the, the path that my mm. work would take for the next, you know, 25 years. That's a really good thing to do, to, to, to recommend not one biography, but two. Yeah, it is. And uh, especially with a, a character like Plath, right? Yes. Um, or a subject, I should say, not a character. But um, yeah, I, because I... I there's if you if you start that way then you never have any idea that any of those books are singular or definitive right yeah so that's been very important to my understanding not only of of sylvia platt's life and her work but also of the genre of biography um so yeah so you were taught plath mm -hmm. uh but you also you also now teach plath what's that like I don't get to teach her as much as I would like, but I'm about to be teaching her quite a bit more. Um, and it's, it's, it's so exciting. I, <laughs> I love teaching her. Um, I love to see the different responses that I get from, from students. And sometimes the students I think who are least likely to be interested in her are just riveted by her. Um, and that's exciting. And, I, male students love Plath, which I love because it, it, there's this stereotype that it's only these, you know, dark, yes, yeah, crazy women, right? And I, I right. find that male uh, students and men in general, in equal numbers, love Plath. Like the Plath community that I'm part of, 
is it's probably 50 50 i would say in terms of mm -hmm. uh you know gender so yeah are they attracted as much to her poetry as to her prose is there do they favor one or the other yeah i think i don't think that there's a that, that they favor one or the other but I, I tend to work more with her poetry um i i do a lot of work of in well in my own work and also sometimes i'll teach this um the sort of like misinformed idea that her poems are autobiographical Mm -hmm. um, which I, that is, is still this dominant theme in work about her. Even, I mean, I, there's a part of uh, my book, Loving Sylvia Plath, that I'm trying to finish up now, actually, uh, that deals with poem, the, specifically her two most famous poems are, you know, Daddy and Lady Lazarus. And yes. even if you go to like the British Library's website, there are, there's this great series on the website that's like, something like engaging with 20th century literature and there's articles about lady Lazarus and articles about daddy that are included in the series. And th like they, they go as far as to try and find the, the suicide attempt that Plath had when she was 10 years old because of the line in lady Lazarus, you know, when she says um, the first time I did it, I was 10 or whatever the line is. I don't have it in front. Of right. Me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's like there's absolutely no evidence that Sylvia Plath tried to end her life when she was 10 years old. And yet you see no. like, ham fisted attempts everywhere to do this. Like it's almost like a matching game. Yes. You know? um, and so I like to teach it from that perspective. Uh, that's a lot of, of fun. That's a, a fun, I think, angle to enter the poems. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That's very much so. So how do you get from... Uh, reading and someone teaching you Plath, to your teaching Plath, to your writing a book about Plath? Well, it was a really long process for me. <laughs> so I. Well, Emily, take your time. Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a long process for everyone in their own way. Um, I mean, when I got offered the contract from Norton, it was August of 2019. And when I say, you know, I had been working, doing this work for 20 years. I wasn't kidding. I mean, it was the culmination of 20 years of work. Mm -hmm. I started doing work on Plath's, writing critical essays on Plath's poetry my sophomore year of college. And then my junior year of college, I took critical theory classes for the first time. And so I was reading people like um, Helene Sisu and Julia Kristeva and Michel Foucault and engaging with like mid to late 20th century um, post-structuralist work for the first time and I, I, and feminist theory for the first time. And so that to me informed my, it just made my reading of Plath blow up and not just her work, but also biographies of her and these ideas that existed about her and culture. Um, I felt like I, because they had always struck me as really wrong and missing, mm -hmm. but I couldn't quite say why. And so when I read those kind of theorists, then suddenly I had language for why. Um, and coincidentally, that was academic year 2000, 2001. So that was also the year that Platt's unabridged journals came out for the first time in the UK and the United States. So I was actually working at a bookstore. And so uh, I got galleys and I was able to read them before they came out. And I still have the, the copy that actually that Karen Kukul, the editor of them signed for me when I did a panel with her and met her for the first time in 2016. And 
uh, I had read the abridged version that came out in 1982. I'd read it to death, you know, and so I was able to to see those gaps all of a sudden. Oh yeah, right. And yeah. and just because I, you know, I was 19, I hadn't hadn't been to an archive yet. Um, I'm sure some 19 year olds are lucky and get to go to archives, but but I had not. A few at Smith College, yeah, as right. far as I know. And I wasn't yeah. at Smith, but I was at Emerson. So I was in Boston. And I so I did feel, you know, connected to Plath in that way too, right? That I was in a place where she had spent quite a bit of time, especially because Emerson is right on the Boston Common and the Public mm-hmm. Gardens. And she writes so um, hilariously about that area in the bell jar. But yeah, so when I was able to see the what I remember I'm writing, I wrote a very long paper about this at Emerson and I, I wrote about the, the textual space essentially. And like, who is the Sylvia Plath in quotes that emerges from that textual space that exists between the unabridged journals and the abridged journals. Um, and yeah, I think that that, so I, I also started to think for the first time, cause I, you know, I was also reading like Roland Barthes, you know, death of an author. Um, yes. So I was thinking about, Previously, I had only thought about Sylvia Plath as like a living historical woman, which is good, I think, in some ways. But suddenly I began to understand her as a constructed figure. And so my interest became uh, how did that process occur in culture? And also, I remember at the time being interested in writing a book about the idea of like who was Sylvia Plath in the 1960s. And when I would say Sylvia Plath, I would put her in, in quotes, right? Because she's an imaginary figure as opposed to the historical woman. Yeah. Who was Sylvia Plath in the 1970s? How does she change as, as we change? Um, so yeah, so that was my, the I would say the, the root of, of that work. And I was lucky enough at Emerson to work. My advisor there was a woman named Maria Kundura who was also... Um, she did her her PhD at Stanford, and she was Diane Middlebrook's um, assistant on her biography of Anne Sexton. Oh, and so uh, she was, you know, obviously had was incredibly helpful to me in formulating those ideas and getting them down on paper. So she advised that paper, um, and and that was kind of that. And then I. I, but I didn't jump right into academia. I traveled. I took weird jobs. <laughs> I did all kinds of strange things in my 20s. I worked as a nanny for this very wealthy winemaking family. Um, and well, I, that's a part of Plath's biography. It, it is. And I think unwittingly, well, it's a part of a, of a lot of writing women's biographies, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I think I had this like when I took the job, I was 23 and I was just like, Oh, this will be cool. I'll get to live in California. And I, that was my, the, the chief reason I took it was to be able to travel because they traveled to Europe quite a bit. And so I thought, well, great, you know, that's free travel to Europe. I'll take it. Um, and I like children too. And, um, but then of course, once I was out there and I was traveling with them and I was living this very strange lifestyle, I mean, being a nanny is a weird job. There's no way around it. Um, then I, I started to remember, of course, from my literary education and my passion for books, how many writing women had been nannies or had been governesses, right? And so I thought about myself as a kind of Jane Eyre figure. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Marie Curie, too, was a nanny. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I did not know that. Yes. That's so interesting. Well, it's a, I mean, women 
I want to be clear. I, I certainly was not in a position where I had to take a job as a nanny, like in 2003, I was, you know, had a, had a degree from a nice college and I could have gone and taught or done any number of things, but I, I didn't, but there, you know, and throughout history, those are the choices women had you sure. know, too often. If you didn't want to get married, right? Like what were you going to mm-hmm. paint China or go be a nanny? Yes. Yeah. So how does your experience in a sense align with Plath in such a way that you're going to write a book that's called Loving Sylvia Plath? Well, so it, it's, it has, I, what I wanted when I was in graduate school, so I started my MFA in 2007 and I immediately understood that I, I was happy to be doing it, but I, I thought oh, I've made a mistake here. I should have, I should have applied for a PhD in, in literature because I was much more interested in writing critically about other people's work than I was in writing my own work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I had also, I, I did an MFA in poetry, but I sort of was dying to write prose. Um, and so by the end of the program, I, I was kind of secretly writing a lot of nonfiction that was really hybrid work that was partly my own personal narrative. I was writing a lot at that point about having been a nanny. Um, and that was also about my relationship with Sylvia Plath. Um, so that, then I thought like, well, I think I want to write a book about what it's like to love another writer this much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't, I mean, I knew there was some stuff out there that was like that, but I, I didn't think there was anything like that about Plath and there, there wasn't, and there isn't. Uh, which is interesting to me that there, that it doesn't exist yet. Like every time, I mean, I guess most people that write books feel this way, but every time I really start to dig, you know, into it and it's getting close to being done, I'm thinking like, I, because she's so, she, she drives people's obsessions, you know, yes. I mean, people are just absolutely mad about Plath. So it's interesting to me that, that no one has done this yet, but I think there are reasons behind that too, which maybe we can touch on later. Um but what ended up happening was I, I got married and uh, I was married for two years and uh, it was not a happy marriage and not for any particular, my husband was a lovely person. We just weren't a good fit. And so I left the marriage and I had a kind of passionate affair with a poet and um, we had a child and it was a very violent, dangerous relationship. And I left my home. I, we were living in New Jersey and uh, my family sort of said, well, we, you know, it's, it's him or us. And I said, well, I choose him. And, you know, we had a very young child at that point. We had a two month old son. Mm -hmm. And so we picked up and quite literally ran away. I mean, we left for his hometown in, in uh, Southeast Texas and we lived there for a little while and things got increasingly more dangerous. And in the beginning, his family, his parents were very supportive of me because he had a drug problem and was trying to get sober. And they were like, oh, we're so glad you stuck by him and what have you. And then his drug problem got increasingly worse, but he was lying about it. And so 
I knew what was going on, of course, because we were living together, but his parents chose to sort of believe his version of events over me. And part of his version of events were that I was dangerous and I was an addict and I was violent and mm. which was, you know, it was all quite literally just constructed out of thin air, you know, because that's, well, I don't know exactly why, but that's what happened. And so I was suddenly removed from everyone that I knew and loved and everyone knew me and knew that that was not who I was. And those were things that I had never done and would never do. And somebody was telling a version of my life that wasn't my life. And it was really the most frightening thing I've ever experienced. And so I left, I went back to New Jersey. I took our son and then I had to sort of rebuild my life from scratch because things were really quite bad for me. And I had to get my job at Stockton back and get onto the tenure track and, you know, do all of these really challenging things. And I was a single parent. Mm-hmm. You know what this sounds like? I, I, well, you tell me. because <laughs> <laughs> What this sounds like to me is a Sylvia Plath story. Well, I do think there are a lot of parallels. There's some displacement, you know, you're, you're moving to Texas from New Jersey. That's quite a switch. Mm-hmm. The sort of fraught relationship with the husband. I could go on, and a, but I'll and let a you go relationship on. with my own parents too, right? Yes, uh, yes, it was very loving, but also sometimes stifling. I, I really relate to Plath's kind of obsession with pleasing her mother. Mm. I, I have a very similar relationship. I, less now, obviously, but there was a time when I had a very similar relationship with my own parents. I was a lot like Plath as a young child. I was kind of. Um, I spoke really early. I wrote really early. I published really early. I won prizes, you know, as a, like a young adolescent and a teen. And, you know, I was precocious. So that I, the, the, the phrase that I always use, I always felt like I was tap dancing, you know, yes, yeah. <laughs> like you have to sing for your supper. Um, and so, yeah, so there's a lot of, of parallels and I don't mean to imply like, oh, I'm like Sylvia Plath, although I mean, right. people that, yeah. that do that, right. They're well, people. Yes, I think, I think that's right. Uh, I don't know how much of this actually gets into your book, but I think that's what you do. And either when you're writing a biography or something that's biographical, you identify with someone else, which is not the same thing at all as saying, even you're like them or, uh, you're similar, but there are certain aspects of that person's experience, in this case, this poet, uh, prose writer's experience, that you, you feel especially close to. Yeah, and, and also, I think part of the book is, is it's about that, it's about the closeness that I feel to her, but it's also about the fact that I, there was always a sense that I had, that I had to sort of hide that. Like, I think that Plath is kind of, one of the redheaded stepchildren of the literary world and of the act and particularly of the academic world, even though she's in some ways like the major poet of the 20th century or of the second half of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't, we, we still don't really understand Plath studies in the way that we understand like studies of T.S. Eliot or yeah. John Keats. Right. Uh, and you, you, you like, when we say plath studies, I think we don't, I don't think we've been saying that for very long, right? Like I, that's a fairly new thing. And I think there's a reason for that because she was sort of relegated to this, the mad poet, right? But mm-hmm. that's also compounded by these ideas about her femininity and her, you know, that she 
like for instance, and I write quite a bit about this in the book. I, I had a, a different English teacher, a woman that I, that I really liked a lot. And uh, in high school, and I ran into her one day and I was holding Ariel and she looked at it and she made a face and I said, Oh, you don't like her. And she said, she killed herself over a man. So boring. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so, and I felt really chastised in that moment. And, and I've had lots of experiences like that always mm. in a classroom or in a workshop. Yeah. Right. So you're, you were saying earlier, you know, that there's, you're obviously writing this book because there is no book like this and that's why you want to write it. And I think you're also revealing why no one else has written this book because in a sense it's kind of dangerous because of the, you know, certain um, preconceptions people have about Plath. And if they have those preconceptions about Plath, they may very well apply those to you if your book is in any way personal. I think that you're correct. I think it's a particularly dangerous subject matter for that reason and, and for, for others too. I think people, it's interesting people sign like the publishing industry. I think like they, on the one hand, they love Plath, right? Because she sells. Yes. You can't, you know, she, her books by her sell and books about her. And for good reason, because her work is extraordinary and she's arresting and she's always arresting. She never stops being arresting. Um, but then also people find her kind of distasteful. They're kind of like, ugh, there's this like ugh, reaction to her. Yeah. Yeah. Too, too extreme. Yeah. Too extreme. Um, sometimes, you know, too silly, right? Like there's this mm-hmm. idea that she's silly and also that, that all of her work before Ariel was, was worthless and right. we shouldn't bother looking at that. And there's, and this is part of the book too, but you know, and other people have written about this in different ways before me. I'm thinking specifically of um, Jacqueline Rose, uh, the British scholar, you know, who wrote about who wrote yes. the haunting of Sylvia Plath. Um, but, you know, Hughes called all of her work before Ariel waste products. Right. And I think because Hughes has been dead since 1998, a lot of people who are, I was just old enough to still be around when he was around, right? And and be reading her when he was still writing about her. And I was alive when birthday letters came out. And also I, I went to college in Boston and he didn't, you know, he lived in England, but he, a lot of his good friends lived and taught in Boston uh, she, or in the Boston area. So I encountered a lot of those people when I was in college. Um, so those ideas were tossed around a lot in my classrooms, you know, or not my class, but in classrooms that I was in. Mm-hmm. Um, so now people kind of think like, well, he's been dead. Who cares? He doesn't have that much influence. And it's like, yeah, but you don't know what it was like in, you know, 20 years ago, he still had so much influence and I still think he has influence now, but yeah. So the whole idea was that anything that she had done previous to 1962 was just like, Oh, we might as well, you know, put it on the trash heap and light it on fire. It's just a total waste of your time. And I think if you think that way, then while that's an awfully narrow window, right, on someone their entire life writing, um, but also how can you ever understand Ariel if you don't read the work that came before it? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's what uh, that's what um, Heather Clark does so well in her new biography is she really takes a good look at some of that very early poetry and how it's it is leading in some ways to uh, to the final product, so to speak. I thought that 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 was so incredible, and I, I was disappointed in the reviews that kind of 
you know, gently took her to task for that. Like, oh, who wants to read mm-hmm. every line about plaster? Yeah. Well, first of all, she made it so readable. I mean, it was almost like reading a mystery novel. You know, it was such a page turner. But beyond that, again, going back to the idea of, of the way that young well, not just young women, but any, any, so many writers identify with Plath, both in terms of her work and her biography. I mean, reading the early work that Plath was doing, and I'm talking about the stuff that Clark was at from when she was an adolescent, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old, the poems where she's writing about the iciness of the moon and other planets and the coldness and the starkness, you know, that you hear come back up in the moon, the moon and the yew tree and Elm, right? The stuff that her most famous poems was so beautifully put together. Um, But beyond that, I also, she, at the same time, she's writing about the, the different ways that Platt's mental health played out as an adolescent where, you know, sometimes she would just be overwhelmed and that would sort of manifest itself as, you know, a bad sore throat or just the need to stay in bed and, and read and write for 24 or 48 hours because she was so intelligent and so sensitive and such a hard worker. I, I mean, I, that was, that was like looking into a mirror, you know, that, that was so in my adolescence, you know, where I just would, some days you just could not face the sort of like shallow nastiness of like being an adolescent in the United States. And you, I just wanted to run away and like do nothing but read the Brontes for, you know, and I was blessed with parents that would kind of let me do that. Um, So I thought that was another element of Platt's early life and personality that we had never gotten before. And to see that paralleled with the work that she was doing at that time, I I was amazed by that. Yeah, no, that's quite good. And it rectifies, again, going back to Ted Hughes, the way he divided the collected poems, you know, to the juvenilia and and the mature work. It it just, you can't, you can't track Platt that way. It it just doesn't work. And and, uh, Heather um, uh, reconstitutes Sylvia Platt in that sense by, by looking at that early stuff. She does. And she also... One of the things that I write about in the preface, particularly of Loving Sylvia Plath, is Plath has been presented to us completely out of context for decades. I mean, I even in some yeah. of the biographies, your biography was the first one that I read that that really made strides in putting her into the context of her time, talking about, you know, her listening to the radio and the shadow nose and how she loved Gone with the Wind. You know, that made me feel like Plath is this person who is existing in America in the 40s and 50s, whereas previous to that, I always felt, I think when I wrote my review of, of Red Comet, I said, you know, she's dealt with like she's the mad poet who falls from a cold star, you know, and, you know, yeah. briefly lands on that. <laughs> yeah. And I just hate that. I, I, that, I think that's such a, that's so damaging, not only to her, but I, the part of the larger argument of loving Sylvia Plath is that that is damaging to writing and reading women. Oh yeah. Right? Because yeah. then, you know, we understand ourselves as either alien weirdos, right. Or like, well, how, if, if, if this is what Plath was like, you know, how can I ever do that? I might as well throw in the towel. Now I actually met a woman at a a conference in January, 2020. So God, like a month before the whole world crashed. 
And we were at dinner together and we were talking about our work. And I told her a little bit about what I was working on. And she said, oh, I was so obsessed with her in college. And then I read a biography of her and she was probably like 50. And I, and when I found out what happened to her, I went and I took all the poems that I had written that were inspired by her and I put them in the fireplace and I burned them and I never wrote anything like that again. And because essentially she felt terrified, right? Like, like, oh my goodness, is this the kind of fate that I am being about? Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very curious. Biographies take on lives of their, their own, so to speak. There's a kind of trajectory and one biography builds on, on another sometimes in not such a good way. I mean, you mentioned class interest in popular culture. One of the reasons why I wanted to tell readers, for instance, that Jack Benny was one of her you know, mm-hmm. favorites on radio, is if you look at the humor of the Jack Benny show, it's quite satiric and it's quite mm-hmm. cutting. Uh, and that's yeah. math. I mean, you know, you don't, you don't have to be just a driven poet to have that sensibility. No, of course you don't. In a lot of different ways in the culture, you know, in the culture, not not just in that person. Yeah, I I think that's exactly right, and I think that that we've been totally deprived of that version of her, right? And in some right. ways, because Hughes had the kind of control that he did over her work, and you know, the editing of her work, and I mean, I there's there's some logic to that right only because Hughes is not American right like he's English and so you know it's it's possible to understand that he just sort of just doesn't know right so he just sort of leaves it behind and he's also not very curious you don't think (laughs) well he's not very curious really about her background when he comes to this country it's just you know one thing after other he finds fault with and there's no you know when you think of someone like Nabokov who just you know it's not that he approved of everything American but he relished finding out right right where Plath is one of the most intensely curious subjects I think yeah yeah I think that's true one other thing I noticed about the reviews and I don't know how you feel about this that is the the reviews of Heather Mm -hmm. Park's book is it was almost like uh, they were breathing a sigh of relief. Oh, now we've got it all. We don't have to think about it. I, yeah, right. And <laughs> and you always hear that. And the the title of the preface of Loving Sylvia Plath is No More Plath, Please, which is, I've written a little bit about this before, but I'm kind of delving much more into it in the, the preface. But it's the, it was an actual editorial that the New York Times printed after the film Sylvia came out, they printed a review of the film. And so some Mm. man in Florida named Horace Hone, I don't know who he is, but anyway, he wrote like a one line editorial to the New York times. No more Plath, please. (laughs) And that was it. And they printed it. And you know, that's the most succinct version, uh, the most alliterative succinct version of something that we hear all the time. Every time there's another book about her, every time there's, um, there's yes. whatever you know there's this flurry of press that talks about like haven't we had enough already you know and i i think that 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 is both unique to plath but also indicative of uh the sexism inherent to how she's treated yeah 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 there's a lot to that what else should i have asked you Anything? i don't know i love the questions that you asked me 
Barb, I can, this is this stuff is so exciting to me. I mean, I think I, I when you said that the answer to one biography is always another biography, and when we talked in the summer, I mean, I that just like my yes. head blew up in the best possible way. So I, I'm certainly writing about that and quoting you in the book. Great. And I, I'm, I'm reading uh, biographies quite a bit right now, just because like I have, you know, the new baby. And so you can, sure. biographies are like, you can plow through them, you know, that's what's so, so terrific yeah. about them. So I just started one about Frida Kahlo. So I was, I've been thinking so much about that idea that, you know, why would you ever think that, you know, you could have one definitive version of any person's life. And also I've been sort of arguing as I'm wont to do with Janet Malcolm in my head, you know? Oh yes. Yeah. We all, we all do that. <laughs> well, you know, this idea that biography is like somehow immoral, like I, I still can't get past yeah. that. It's, it's, it's it creepy. Is, it is. Yeah. <laughs> I, so I'm, well, sh I think her, I don't know I, that I've read that book to death and, but I, yeah. um, well, I was thinking about that reading about Frida Kahlo because it's like immoral, like this, how it's the opposite, right. To bring the, the light of this woman's work and experience to the world. I mean, the, if I hadn't read those biographies of Plath, if I hadn't read Plath's work, I mean, my, the whole trajectory of my life could have been different and not in a good way. Sure. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's the thing that people often, if they have only a cursory understanding of Plath or no really understanding, but they know the name, uh, they don't they they can't conceive of the idea that studying and writing about Sylvia Plath can actually be a liberating experience. No, I'm asked all the time if I am depressed by it. And yeah. I was never depressed writing about. Sylvia Plath. I find writing about Sylvia Plath absolutely thrilling. I I, I think um, the best work is transcendent and it's enigmatic, and uh, Plath's poetry is both of those things. Her prose is both of those things, and her life is both of those things. And I mean, that's why your quote about one biography being answered by another is is so important to me because I. I keep waiting to be tired of, of reading and writing about Sylvia Plath and I never am. And, and in fact, I, it has led me to read and write about Ted Hughes. And um, mm -hmm. as much as I, as a young woman had a kind of personal disdain for him, I'm, it's part of the story. Right. And so sure. I, I'm quite fascinated by that as well. And I, I just think it's, it's led me all over the, world and I met the most incredible people and it's helped me to articulate difficulties in my own life I mean it's and it's thrilling I mean when when Plath's poetry because you know you don't reading poetry is not always some days poems are like locked boxes and other days they just you know present themselves to you and they 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 can really quite literally flood you they're effective to the body you know and I remember yes opening up the poems, the Assia poems, because I had just finished Julie Goodspeed Chadwick's book about Assia last winter, and it was the anniversary of Plath's death. It was February 11th, and I was working from home, 
And I thought, I want to reread, you know, The Courage of Shutting Up and The Detective and all those those poems. And it was just one of those days when, when they just were wide open to me or I was wide open to them or whatever it was. And it was just magical. And I've read those poems a hundred times, you know, but suddenly it was brand new. And, you know, you bring your own experience to it. I'm I'm in love with a tattoo artist now and I have tattoos and I uh, did not before. And those images of, of the tattoo artists in those poems, were, they just they had all this new rich meaning for me. Wonderful. Yeah. It is. Well, you've given us a lot. to. Oh, I hope to. so. I, I it has been such a joy writing this book. I, I can't. It's just it's so much fun. And when do you think? It well, it's due to the publisher March 21st, I believe. Um, it's mostly done at this point. It's just sort of some connective tissue and fishing through uh, some of the the archival stuff that I have on my, my laptop to, you know, round it out a little bit, but I'm, I don't know. I'm hoping to be done probably by like mid February. Mm -hmm. So that means it might be out by end of the year or early. That is what I'm hoping yes. for. And I'm super excited yeah. about it. I, it's uh, one of the things that I say in the introduction is that it's probably clear to anyone reading this, that I've been arguing with the silent woman for the last 20 years. <laughs> But the book is in many ways an homage to that book because it was so important to me and it it sort of it informed so much of the work and informs so much of the work that I've done. So the the format of the book is sort of adapted from the silent woman. So it's it was originally done in um, traditional chapters, but now it's uh, three very long essays. Yeah, so I'm very Sounds excited great. about that. Well, good luck well thank you so much, Carl. I mean, I read your book when it came out in 2013 and I was, it was that sort of the, the end of that period where I was an adjunct and trying to rebuild my life. I got hired onto the tenure track the next year, but uh, you, you were like a, a distant Plath hero and it's so great to be your friend. Yeah. 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 It's worked Absolutely. out well for both of us. Thank okay, you so much. You. All right. Sure. Take care.